Hello, and welcome to our March Publications podcast. As always, here we're going to be reviewing the latest lupus literature, trying to unpick what that means for clinical practice. I'm Ed Vital from the University of Leeds. I'm chair of the Lupus Forum, and I'm joined today by Eric Morand, all the way from Melbourne in Australia, where he's professor of medicine and head of rheumatology, as well as head of the School of Clinical Sciences at Monash University. Welcome, Eric. Hi, Ed. Always a pleasure and uh, happy to be with you this uh, this month. Thanks. So we've, we've got some great papers that have been selected. And the first of those were some studies on which we were both involved, weren't we? The, um, the two phase three studies from the Baricitinib Clinical Trial Programme, uh, SLE Brave 1 and 2. Uh, would you like to talk us through the data a bit then? Sure. So, OK, everybody knows Baricitinib. Uh, for treatment of rheumatoid arthritis, it's also approved in some parts of the world for alopecia areata. And there was a positive phase two trial in lupus of baricitinib uh, published by uh, Dan Wallace in The Lancet about four years ago now. In that trial, SRI was the primary outcome measure. SRI uh, responders are patients whose disease activity improves by at least four sleet eye points uh, without worsening in either a PGA or a bilag as a kind of alternative measures. And then some very nice work by Thomas Dorner looked at some biomarker analyses in patients from that study, which showed a very compelling um, uh, positive set of signatures in patients before treatment with activity across uh, the B lymphocyte as well as type 1 interferon pathways, which we've become familiar with. I always find it reassuring to see such similar patterns in different cohorts of patients. Makes me feel like those markers are really telling some, something truthful. Uh, and they also showed in that study that baricitinib treatment um, caused a reduction in some of those important biological signatures in a dose-dependent way. It looked like the, just the sort of experimental data that would support going ahead with a phase three trial of this drug. So mm. that's what we've done in these two trials, BRAVE1 and BRAVE2. So they were standard, uh, very traditional, uh, one-year-long randomized placebo-controlled trials enrolling patients with active disease at baseline who had a sleet eye baseline of at least six, which is medium active disease. The average sleet eye in the study was about 10, which is really moderately active. Uh, patients were on standard of care medications and that they included corticosteroids, antimalarials, and immunosuppressants, as well as combinations. And uh, patients were randomized to either stay on those background medications and add placebo, or stay on those background medications and add baricitinib two milligram per day or four milligram per day. Both trials, BRAVE1 and BRAVE2, were designed to be uh, as similar as possible and to all intents and purposes, they were identical. They recruited in different sites and different centers in different parts of the world, but the actual study design of the two studies, the entry criteria, the treatment paradigm, and the outcome measures were the same. Now, importantly in this study, and we'll see when we talk about the results, there was no mandatory steroid taper in this study design. Of course, we always encourage our lupus patients to taper steroids. But in a clinical trial, often investigators are trying to keep things very steady and maybe uh, even slightly more reluctant to taper steroids than you or I might be in clinical practice for that kind of background reason of trying to not rock the boat. Uh, whether that's uh, relevant to the results, as we'll see in a moment, is not quite clear. So the primary outcome measure of these two phase three trials was the same, and that was the SRI4 response at week 52, which I've explained before. And there were multiple secondary outcome measures. Typically in registration trials like this, some of those outcome measures are key 
secondary outcome measures that are adjusted for multiplicity uh, for multiple testing, so-called multiplicity adjusted outcome measures, and other secondary outcome measures are uh, exploratory and are not part of the formal statistical analysis package. They those outcome measures included uh, uh, responses at different times, uh, different definitions of response such as lupus low disease activity state, achieving steroid taper, time to flare, etc. And in the exploratory side were things like changes in organ domain activity using sleet iron biolag. So that's a long description for what was really very standard traditional phase three trials of the type we've seen before. Unfortunately, it's exactly the sort of trial design that we have seen variable results from before with high rates of trial failure in this um, study design. So onto the results. Uh, so these two trials were all but identical, but the results were not identical. So I'm going to take you through them uh, one by one, and then uh, we'll talk about what does it all mean. So BRAVE1, shown on the left, was a positive trial. The SRI4 response was seen in statistically significantly more patients who took baricitinib 4 milligram in addition to standard of care compared to patients who took placebo in addition to standard of care. That was the pre-specified primary outcome measure. The result was statistically significant with an odds ratio of 1.57, as you can see on the slide. That's actually not that different from other positive trials. So mm -hmm. this is a positive um, trial. The difference you can see is not a very big difference. It's 57% compared to 46%. Trials of this size have sufficient statistical power to uh, 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 declare that as a primary, as a positive result. Now, unfortunately, in the almost identical BRAVE2 trial shown on the left, no such difference was seen. The SRI4 response rate was 47% in active in uh, baricitinib 4 milligram treated patients and 46% in placebo treated patients. And you can see obviously there that the odds ratio has crossed one, the p-values were not significant. So just on the primary endpoints, Ed, we've got a disparity with one positive trial and one negative. And we've gotten used to seeing this a bit. And in the TULIP program, for example, um, uh, the primary outcome measure in TULIP 1 was also negative but there was a compelling wagon of secondary outcome measures that were strongly positive, pointing the finger at least in part on the actual outcome measure rather than potentially on the drug. But in the case of the BRAVE studies, that was not the case. All the key secondary outcome measures that were multiplicity adjusted were negative in both BRAVE1 and BRAVE2. There was not a p-value to be found um, in uh, those um, uh, measures. And so the kind of weight of evidence for baricitinib efficacy remains at best ambiguous with one positive trial and one negative trial and a lack of a strong kind of set of layers of backup uh, positive results. That's different to the results in the TULIP study, which did have those backups, and also different to some positive recent phase two trials, such as the, those of ducravacitinib. Now, there were some other positive glimmers in BRAVE1. When we looked at SLEDI organ domains or BILAG organ domains, we could see uh, improvements in baricitinib-treated patients compared to placebo in the musculoskeletal domain and the mucocutaneous domain. And that was for both SLEDI and BILAG, suggesting it wasn't a measurement um, issue. So these were hints of probably what drove this SRI4 response, improvements in musculoskeletal and mucocutaneous domain, 
that they were not in the key multiplicity adjusted uh, statistical analysis stack. So they're exploratory only. And as is probably known by everybody now, the, the, the development program for this drug in SLE has been formally discontinued. We will not see a registration of this drug for the treatment of lupus. And finally, just to talk about safety, it's very important. It's not on the slide here. Uh, but importantly, because lupus patients have a higher rates of infections because of the background treatment and also higher rates of, uh, of VTE and cardiovascular events, they were carefully studied in this study. There was an increased rate of infection in baricitinib-treated patients, including some herpes zoster, but the rates were in line with previous studies in other diseases, and there was no signal in um, cardiovascular or VTE events. And this trial didn't exclude patients with antiphospholipid antibodies, for example. So that was reassuring from a safety point of view. However, that's of limited value, seeing we won't be using it for efficacy. Thanks. Well, so, yeah, it's these trials are always surprising, aren't they? But we're often asking ourselves when we look at these negative studies, does it mean that the uh, does it mean that the drug doesn't work or does it mean that the trial doesn't work? Um, yeah. And in this one, I'm in a bit of two minds, really. So RC RCTs obviously don't necessarily tell the truth, although we act like they do. But when you see right. two identical trials disagree with each other, you know that they can't yep. both be telling the truth. Mm -hmm. um, and I was I was looking through carefully like you, you know, to think, is there some positive signal? And the thing that stood out to me across the phase two and both the phase threes is you you keep seeing some trends around something to do with MSK pain and or, yep. or something, which is something we think we know from inflammatory arthritis as well. So it does make it, there's that, and there's the fact that the rationale sounded good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interferon, yeah. this this should block the interferon pathway. So it does make just uh, does, does make me wonder, will someone one day find a drug for this drug? It's licensed for other indications. People are yeah. often using therapy. Lupus is a complicated disease, and we do have to rely mm -hmm. on unlicensed drugs and case series data and things sometimes, don't we, for some of our patients? So you wonder if someone yeah. will one day find a role. Well, you're talking about rituximab, right? I mean, rituximab is yeah. not licensed for lupus, but it is used for lupus on the basis of uh, case series data and uh, so on. So like you, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. Mm. Um, I think the difference probably is all of us who treat a lot of lupus patients have seen some patients treated with rituximab who have these kind of miraculous looking, amazing responses. Yeah, And uh, I'm not sure we saw anything like that in these um, data. Yeah. And now to their credit, the sponsors Lily are, have done and are doing from very extensive further analysis on these results to see what the results can teach the field. And I look forward to them being shared at upcoming conferences and or publications. We need to learn the answer to your question. Did the drug not work or did the trial not work? Yeah. Of course, it's possible that it's both. But uh, it, it's, if you go to the lab to do an experiment, uh, designing an experiment that won't necessarily give you a result, then walk back out of the lab and design it better and then go back yeah. in when you know you can get a result. And I worry that these big experiments which is really what these phase three trials are, 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 are prone to human factors. It's us who design these studies and we are making the decisions about how to do them. And I think we have to take part of the responsibility for these negative results alongside the compound and the biology that we can do less about.
Yeah, yeah, that's right. The, the, the sponsors of these studies can only use what we as the lupus community of academics give them to use, can't they? Um, yeah. And I know you're you're involved in efforts to try and improve that situation, of course. Yes, um, yeah, I look forward to talking about that one at a future lupus forum, perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> and so, and, and as yeah, okay, so uh, we'll we'll move on. Um, so we've next got a paper about lupus nephritis, haven't we? Yeah. So this is a nice paper from uh, C.C. Mock and others from Nature Reviews Rheumatology. And, uh, you know, it's just one of my favorite journals. I've got a, st a stack of them on my desk here that I haven't finished reading, like everybody else. Um, but the, the way they select topics for review is usually in a, in a way where the field is moving and somebody needs to say something about it. Mm -hmm. So I, I like this paper a lot and I recommend it to your um, audience to, to have a read. So... Um, CC Mock, as many of your uh, audience will know, has been involved in and or led some of the substantial and important uh, clinical trials in lupus nephritis, uh, usually uh, using off-label therapies that are used off-label and trying to establish the evidence base for their use in a rigorous uh, way, uh, rather than pharma studies of new products. He's done a lot of work that's informed our use of existing products. So he's in a very good position to review um, this literature. So the first point that the authors make in this um, it's almost a review of reviews because there's been some various treatment guidelines published by the ULAR in 2019, uh, the Kadigo guidelines from the nephrology community, also 2019 from memory, and a recent APLAR Asia-Pacific guidelines in 2021. And so the, some of the contrasts there are highlighted in the paper. But what's highlighted first is that we still have got a long way to go uh, with the treatment of lupus nephritis. Uh, despite... Um, uh, improvements in background therapy until the recent approval of belimumab and voclosporin, and we'll be talking slightly about those in a minute, um, we really are not doing that well. And you only have to look at the placebo arms of the belimumab and voclosporin trials uh, to see that only about 20% of patients who are on standard of care uh, have a complete renal response at either one or two years, and that's defined slightly differently in the studies, but essentially defined as normalization of proteinuria and protection or preservation of renal function measured by EGFR. So if we're if our gold standard treatment of steroids and mycophenolate is only achieving that outcome in 20% of patients, we're pretty bad. And those are the results in those um, uh, uh, placebo arms of those carefully regulated phase three trials. So we need to do better. And in, you know, in our center where we think we do everything we can, for our patients, we're still sending patients to dialysis from time to time, you know, once a year at least. And uh, it's no good. The prognosis of a patient on dialysis of mortality is very poor. Um, so, uh, yeah, we've got to do better. So that's highlighted. Then there was some discussion about differences uh, between regions and ethnicities in terms of efficacy and tolerability of, of drugs. There's been some good uh, discussion about um, potentially less tolerance of high doses of mycophenolate in patients of Asian ancestry. Here in Melbourne, we have 40% uh, of the patients in our lupus clinic are have Southeast Asian ancestry, China, Vietnam, Cambodia, et cetera. And uh, we are guided by some of this evidence about being more cautious about high doses in those patients. Um, there are, of course, different prevalence. Asian ethnicity patients are more likely to be serologically active and more likely to have lupus nephritis some studies suggest they're more likely to have a positive interference signature too. Um, so there is a, there are some differences in the phenotype and maybe in the biological endotype 
between ethnicities that we need to have a better understanding for. So then they go on and talk about some of the uh, recent uh, trials and they review the results of those and how they might, might um, uh, be deployed. Uh, so, uh, for example, um, the uh, uh, approval of belimumab and vocalosporin is, uh, you know, washing around the world in terms of countries where that's being reimbursed. In many parts of Asia, these drugs may never be reimbursed because they're countries with uh, who are basically have a lower GDP, uh, lower um, uh, total amount of uh, money in the economy and uh, don't have nationalized health insurance systems. So um, the Asia-Pacific region still needs to have its own treatment guidelines based on what people can actually do. There's not much point recommending a drug that no one in your region can ever use. So they highlighted some of the differences in the treatment guidelines, including the recent Asia-PAC guidelines still recommending as first line the alternative of mycophenolate and sarcophosphamide, like other guidelines. But the sarcophosphamide dose that they recommend is actually what one might thought of as a slightly old-fashioned dose of 500 to 1,000 milligrams IV once a month compared to the Euro lupus regimen of lower doses more frequently, which they recommend as a secondary option rather than as equivalent to mycophenolate. And that's, a, that's an interesting regional difference. Um, like the other guidelines, they recommend a CNI uh, for refractory patients, the addition of a CNI, and uh, CCMOC has led many of the studies of tacrolimus, for example, um, and that's certainly been our practice here too. Um, so I think the contrast of these guidelines was really um, helpful and it's important for us in uh, uh, wealthy countries with access to reimbursed drugs for our patients to bear in mind our colleagues in areas of the world with high prevalence of disease, high severity of disease, but actually lower access to some of these agents. And I think it's um, important. Now, finally, they talked about um, a few emerging therapeutic options, including potential rituximab, belimumab combinations, uh, I think evidence for those combinations in nephritis is currently not strong. And um, I think uh, hard to advocate for on basis of evidence. Sometimes we need to try things out of the box because we run out of other options. Uh, and then they talk about the potential value of uh, genetic uh, fingerprinting. And I know Ed will be talking about that later in this podcast. I think uh, the short summary of that is that there's still a lot to learn about precision medicine and uh, diagnostic profiling in patients with nephritis to help select therapy. Uh, we're still doing renal biopsies on patients. We're sticking a needle into somebody's back and taking out a piece of tissue and we're looking at under a light microscope. This is a technique that we've invented more than 100 years ago, and it's still our gold standard. So it does feel a bit archaic, to be honest, and we've got to do a lot more work at getting better um, at classifying based on mechanism so that we can treat based on mechanism. So, yeah, I... I really enjoyed this one too. I think I think I like you say these are these are very authoritative reviews, um, mm -hmm. well written. And I suppose the thing I was left thinking, just listening to what you said, was so we've got you know mycophenolate and steroids has been standard therapy for a long time. Outcomes mm -hmm. we think they're okay, but when you really look at what they mean numerically, they aren't that great. Mm -hmm. um, we've got licensed things you can add to that. We've got unlicensed things to that that we can add to that. Are, are the days when mycophenolate and steroids are considered standard of care for induction of lupus nephritis over? It's a great question, um, Ed. I don't have an, a yes, no answer for you, but I think it is a question that we should be discussing um, here at this forum and you know around the field. It is still the recommended 
standard of care in all the guidelines, and yet we know the outcomes are not that good. Hmm. I think one of the problems is that the addition of something like a CNI, tacrolimus, adds a lot of complexity and some toxicity. A vocal sporin adds a lot of cost. What is the numbers needed to treat? Um, and what is the price of that in either safety or actual dollars uh, to achieve yeah. that outcome? How many patients do you end up treating who didn't need to be treated uh, with that uh, therapy with its downsides? And that, that sort of tempers my thinking a little bit. How many people will you be treating who didn't need it? Um, I kind of like the idea of early threshold for escalation, a little bit like what we've done in rheumatoid for a long time. Maybe start with that standard therapy. Some people do go into remission on mycophenolate and prednisolone. How quickly should we escalate? I think maybe that's a fruitful area for uh, for exploration. Yeah, I was at the I was at the uh, Cora meeting last week, the controversies in rheumatology meeting. They were having this debate: should everyone get combination therapies first line or mm -hmm. or not? And um, the, the case was put forward that maybe what you should do is have a look at three months and see mm -hmm. if that you know some people are doing great. Uh, and can be left on their standard therapy other and then you just you've got a very early chance to intervene yeah but i guess the thing that the, the thing that concerns me i think is a point they make quite well in this paper that's kind of on the slide really which is that it's whether what we see over the one year 18 month duration of a trial what does that tell us about what really matters because we're basically licensing drugs and comparing regimes based on a surrogate biomarker which is yep. proteinuria, and that's not what we're actually interested in. What we're interested yep. in is whether we stop renal failure. And mm -hmm. renal failure, the differences in renal failure might not be seen for decades, right? Mm -hmm. Because you know, like all of us are on the, are gradually losing nephrons through our lives, and hopefully mm -hmm. we won't get into a problematic zone until we're in our 80s or something like that. But if yep. you experience a one-off flare of inflammation in your kidney that takes six months to get under control, and you're suddenly 20% close to that, yep. then you've got problems that you're not going to know about for decades. But when they do occur, they really don't matter. Yep. Um, and, and so that's one of the challenges here, isn't it? Is whether mm -hmm. the, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, but the, the benefits of being more intensive may not be seen decades later. Yep. Or alternatively, you might say, oh, these drugs are just changing proteinuria, but the long-term outcomes, they don't make that much difference, and we don't know which it is. Well, I think for drugs that impact on podocyte function like CNIs, I think that is um, uh, an important thing to bear in mind when we analyze the results looking at proteinuria. Yeah. Um, I think we, we're, I was actually talking to one of our clinician PhD students. Um, I got my first nephrologist as a PhD student in uh, in lupus now, and we're going to be using our large Asia Pacific regional registry to actually look at some of these long-term outcome predictors. We have proteinuria data as a continuous variable on, you know, hundreds and hundreds of patients who've been followed for, you know, three, four, five, six years in some cases. We're just about to dive into that and have a look at how much prognostic prediction can we do based on um, baseline characteristics, based on response to therapy, what does the response at one year tell us about five years from now. And yeah. I think big, big registries with a lot of statistical power might be able to tell us that, although that that's just standard of care treatment. They haven't received these more modern interventions that you know could create these better outcomes. So it'd be inferential rather than cause and effect, but I still think we need to do that work. Yeah, yeah. 
So that uh, and, and and you also commented about the differences between different uh, different regions and populations, yeah. which is a nice segue into the next paper, isn't it? Isn't it? What a coincidence! <laughs> uh, you think you think we might have prepared for this or something? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, so one of the agents that's um, uh, being approved in some parts of the world on the basis of positive phase three trials in lupus nephritis is belimumab. We're very familiar with belimumab uh, uh, as an anti-BAF monoclonal antibody used to treat um, active lupus in some parts of the world where it's reimbursed. It's actually not reimbursed in Australia. We have some limited access to it through hospital funding. Mm. Uh, and um, it tends to uh, uh, have, it's been shown to be more effective in patients who are on higher doses of steroids, have higher disease activity and have serological activity. And that's a lot like patients with lupus nephritis who are often likely to have um, serological activity and need a fair bit of steroid. And they usually have high sleet eye scores because nephritis will give you high sleet eye scores. So uh, it was high time for a trial to be done in lupus nephritis uh, of belimumab, and that was done, and everybody's seen uh, the results that were published, I think, in the New England Journal a couple of years ago now um, with a positive trial. What was unusual about this trial was that it was a two-year duration uh, with the primary outcome measure at week 104, though there were other outcome measures along the way. That's a long time to wait for a response. There were some differences between the treatment arms at earlier time points, but it is a ton of uh, on the edge between doing a long study because you want to see long-term outcomes, but uh, do, doing a short one because you want something that works fast. Uh, and if you'd done a three-month study with the limb lab nephritis, you would have stopped because you wouldn't have seen any effect. Mm. Anyway, that. That, that's in the past. That drug's now um, been approved or being approved around the world for treating lupus nephritis. Uh, but considering these regional variations um, in um, uh, prevalence of lupus nephritis and potentially in the biological underpinnings of lupus manifestations in some areas too, uh, this was a pre-specified uh, subgroup analysis in the BLISS-LN trial in lupus nephritis. Not a postdoc analysis, but a pre-specified analysis in patients in uh, uh, the region that the authors called East Asia. So mainline China, Hong Kong, South Korea, and Taiwan. Uh, and there were uh, 142 patients who were in the Bliss LN trials who were from these regions and were treated in, the, in those regions. Uh, and uh, these is, this is an analysis of that subgroup of patients. So the study design is shown, that's the same as the Bliss LN study, autoantibody positive, Patients with LN randomized to standard of care plus or minus belimumab or placebo. Primary endpoint at week 104 of uh, uh, primary efficacy renal uh, response, which is defined as, uh, 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 hang on, I've got it on my slide here somewhere. Here we go. Uh, protein creatinine ratio uh, falling to less than or equal to 0.7 grams per gram and an EGFR protected to have a reduction of no more than 20% or to be greater than 60 mils per minute per meter squared. Uh, so effectively this post, uh, this analysis shows very similar results in the East Asian patients to those that were shown um, in the primary efficacy analysis in the whole population. Um, if anything, possibly a slightly bigger effect size. Um, so the primary outcome measure is this one, the primary efficacy response that I've just described at week 104, 53% of patients on standard of care plus belimumab. And remember that I talked about a 20% placebo response rate in trials overall. 
So 53 compared to 20 is very good. But actually the placebo response rate in the subgroup was 37%. So the delta um, is uh, uh, still good, um, uh, but it's not 53 versus 20, it's 53 versus 37. Yeah. Now the actual uh, odds ratio and 95% confidence intervals for this result cross one. So the result is not statistically significant at this for this primary outcome measure. And the same is the case for CRR, so-called complete renal response, which is slightly more stringent proteinuria reduction, basically. Uh, uh, also a difference favoring belimumab, but the 95% uh, confidence intervals crossed one. Interestingly, the secondary outcome measure of the, uh, the primary efficacy uh, readout at week 52 after one year had a very similar placebo response, somewhat higher belimumab response, 62%. And uh, the 95% confidence intervals for that endpoint at that time point did not cross one. So it was notionally statistically significant um, finding at week 52. So for us uh, here in Australia, where most of our patients with lupus nephritis are of um, uh, East Asian ancestry, this is actually very encouraging uh, for us to see that such patients are likely to be responders uh, to bilimumab um, when added to standard of care in lupus nephritis. If we could see... 62% of patients having uh, um, this level of response at one year, I think we would feel pretty happy. Yeah, and it's, um, on, on one hand, you sort of say, oh, we did a subgroup analysis and it looked kind of the same as the big, as the main study, is that how surprised should I be? But actually it's quite, it's, it's quite important here, isn't it? Because that's not always been the case with other subgroup analyses in lupus nephritis, especially things that are based on sort of ancestry and race or ethnicity and all these rather complex terms that we have to try and wrestle with to describe these populations. Because in, in the ARM study, which was the original one that established mycophenolate, mycophenolate versus cyclo, yeah. Um, the it was not the they they the, the groups they had were called something I think they had Asian white Hispanic and then something called other and then the mm -hmm. group called other whatever that means the, the efficacy was much better for mycophenolate uh, and then the belimumab studies for non renal lupus there was also this quite a complex signal wasn't there about black patients yes that, um it wasn't so clear whether it works or not but then actually. When you broke black down into US or non-US, you've got a completely different answer. Yep. Um, yep. So there's these things aren't guaranteed. And I, I sort of thought after looking at this, I thought, well, we need lots more of this data and we need yep. much more granularity about what we're trying to describe. Because these I just sort of keep thinking that these terms aren't adequate. Um, you know, what does Asian mean to to me is different. Mm -hmm. In my clinic, it means South Asian people um, from yeah. India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. Um, and so these these terms are very difficult to understand exactly what they refer to. Um, black means something very specific in the US that is not what it means in the rest of the world. Um, and we, we I, I keep thinking we don't actually have the language to ask the right questions, never mind to answer them. Yeah. Yeah, so, Ed, I was privileged to be at the end of last year at a small conference uh sponsored by the Lupus Research Alliance, where these questions of race, ancestry, and uh, lupus were, were was the topic of the conference. Um, and um, the having this conference in the US, where there's that you know, strong and very justified um, uh, focus 
on uh, uh, race as a health determinant, mm. uh, but importantly, on the uh, non-inherited aspects of race as a health determinant, which uh, are incredibly powerful uh, anywhere in the world, but, a, but certainly in the US where, uh, unfortunately, uh, race may be linked to uh, uh, access to healthcare because of insurance, employment, and so on. And actually the medical effects of racism because uh, some individuals subjected to lifelong racism basically could be considered to have a lifelong post-traumatic stress disorder, with which we know has profound effects on the immune system, including on lupus. So the end conclusion of that meeting, which was I can't go into huge detail, but basically uh, one of the conclusions was exactly what you just said. We need to find a, a universal set of terms to use uh, to describe um, these populations. We observe them in our in our patients. They may or may not be inherited. They may or may not be actually related to the gene for skin color, for example, which is, you know, the kind of um, uh, the why that we should think of race as a social construct because yeah. the gene for skin color is most unlikely to determine the outcome of lupus nephritis. Um, however, it may be co-inherited with other things and other environmental influences that are important in totality. So uh, one of the key outcomes was actually let's put together a glossary that lupus researchers can use in trials, in cohort studies, et cetera, so that we're all actually talking about the same thing. And I think that's going to be an important step forward. We're, we're not quite there. Here, the authors have used the term East Asian population. So it's people in East Asia. And now um, m most of them um, almost certainly would have been uh, of uh, uh, Asian, uh, South Asia, sorry, East Asian ancestry too. Uh, but that's not actually the name of the study. It's um, East Asian population. And there are other factors here, very different health systems in China and Taiwan, for example, very close to each other geographically, very different health systems. Hong Kong also very different. So there's there's a host of factors um, to be borne in mind. Yeah, and Japan's not there. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Okay, so we need lots more of that kind of data, really, to build up a more granular picture. Yeah, we do. And now, Ed, I'm going to turn the tables and interrogate you. Okay. Because the so, next... Yes. Um, yeah, the next study that we're going to uh, talk about is one that I really enjoyed um, reading, and I'm very glad that you were involved in putting it out. There's been debate over years about um, how we might measure and report uh, activity of the interferon, type 1 interferon pathway in our lupus patients in research and potentially in clinical care. And so uh, to have a position paper on that, I think, is a really useful thing for the field. So um, tell us all about it. Yeah, so this work, this goes back quite a few years, actually, that we were at a, a few, I, we, we, this was in one of the ULAR standing committees where we were discussing potential uh, projects and task forces that should be considered. And I, I sort of commented that I've walked around the conference and I'd seen all these different posters and presentations where people were saying interferon signature can predict this outcome or correlate with this or stratify this trial. And I thought, well, there's, there seem to be hundreds of these studies, but where are they in practice? So what's what's missing here? And I think we all reflected that one of the issues was that when people say interferon assay or interferon signature, everyone's talking about a different thing. Uh, yeah. And that's probably one of the reasons why you never really assemble a big enough body of evidence to get to, to be able to make a recommendation. So that was the aim here. So um, so what we do in these ULAR task forces is you assemble a group of experts. So we have some rheumatologists, some lab scientists, 
um, people who worked on type 1 interferonopathies in children, in virology, patients, health professionals. And, and we formulate the questions we want to know and then conduct a systematic literature review. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the literature gets reviewed against our questions to see if we can form some recommendations um so it was it turned out to be an absolute huge project um so it took years really to go through all those data um and there were some you know there were some there were definitely there were some areas where we could clearly form consensus and see things you know that would that were definitely true there was some there were quite a lot of areas where we felt the literature was still not answering questions clearly enough especially about what the clinical applications were but at least we could define what's what's needed there Mm -hmm. um so i think the you know just to summarize the main findings i think i think the one what one thing with that felt was that so we saw interferon assay usage and associations reported across lots and lots of rmds um, so we talk about lupus, but this is not specific to lupus. It, you, you, you see patterns in the, all the related ANA positive diseases um, and also in other diseases like rheumatoid arthritis and uh, uh, and, a, and a few others too. Um, but another important thing we noticed was that when people design their assays, they're measuring very different things to one another. Mm-hmm. Um and those, they're all important and different. So the, if you think, of, we, we, we actually came up with a terminology that should be used to describe this field because we felt it was unclear enough. And we used the term interferon pathway activation to refer yeah. to like what we're really talking about here. Because what this pathway goes from a cell that's sensing danger and producing interferons, mm-hmm. the interferon protein itself, the protein binding to the receptor, a s- intracellular signaling on the responder cell that's through this JAK-STAT pathway, transcription of interferon-stimulated genes, expression of the proteins that those genes encode, and maybe even sort of morphological behavioral changes in cells. And all of those things have been measured. And people then say, okay, so what's the best one of those? What's the gold mm-hmm. standard? Mm-hmm. um and in the end everyone got together and we all said well there isn't it depends what you want to know there there isn't one um because some people have felt especially when assays like Samoa are coming out that okay if we could measure the interferon protein really really accurately isn't that truly the core of all of this mm-hmm. um we thought about it and thought well no actually not necessarily because interferon proteins and there's not that much of a to about and maybe there's not that much of it about in the blood because the receptors everywhere it's always binding to the receptor and inducing a change in a responder cell and the changes in the responder cells are the ones that give us lupus we think Mm -hmm. so you know is there a really good reason to say we want to measure this protein that we're chasing to try and find or is actually the much more obvious effect on responder cells much more important and it all depends what you want to know yeah um so then, so that was like one of our, our most important conclusions is that the, the assays are all different. They all measure something else. Nothing measures the totality of the pathway. Which assay is appropriate depends on what you want to know, um, but you need to justify it. Um, and, and there needs to be some explanation of why that's the right one. Yeah. So Ed, um, I, I thought this was a great and very timely um, piece of work. Um, 
I've got two questions for you. One is, um, do you think there'll be any movement towards standardization, even of subsets of assays such as um, mRNA uh, interferon gene signatures? And secondly, um, I'm really intrigued by the term points to consider, PTC. Um, the whole uh, goal here is not guidelines or rules, it's points to consider. So I'd really love to hear your thoughts on the, the yeah. selection of that kind of phraseology. Yeah, that's right. So, um, I mean, I guess to the, to the first part is, so what it, is there a clinical role or is there a path, path through to change in practice here? And I think the discussion, we've had a lot of discussions about what's the future direction. And our sort of feeling is, is you probably, you want to take one of the best validated assays so the one with the, the ones with the most data are the gene expression assays and within that you can come down to what seem to be the best and most important features and then probably one of them the most critical clinical questions like for example making a clear diagnosis of lupus in the first place which we know can be yep. for example um take one of the best questions and design one really robust study that will kind of answer that question um yep. so i think that still needs to be done before we can say you use something in the clinic yeah. The bit that's I, I closest, really... Sorry. No, no, go ahead. The bit that's closest to the clinic is, of course, treating with anaphrolumab. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where that's where we've got the strongest data because we've got interferon signature data on the phase three trials showing a better response. But I think there's some still some questions about how important that really is. Mm -hmm. You know, if you really know your patient's active, you mm -hmm. know they're seem, they, they, they seem to be appropriate for the therapy in other ways. Is the data so strong that you deny them a therapy based on their interference signature? And yeah, and I think the conclusion is no. The data yeah. is not so strong that you would deny them a therapy. A therapy. Yeah. The other thing I think it's interesting about anaphrolumab is because, just to remind your readers, because it's an antibody against the type 1 interferon receptor, there are many, many members of the type 1 interferon um, ligand family the only one receptor they're actually classified by the use of that receptor. So by blocking the receptor, you do block all of them. So in terms of understanding uh, what is interferon doing uh, in my patient, you certainly have a chance to completely block it and see what happens. And I'm, I'm interested in those kinds of studies too, which is slightly different to this measurement um, yeah. uh, thing that you've gone after here, but maybe it sits in parallel. And then we've got things which block it slightly less completely, uh, like anti-interferon alpha antibodies, for example, or things that block signaling, in, but also block the signaling of other things. Uh, you know, decravacitinib, for example, blocks the interferon receptor, but it blocks several other things too. So um, complicated. Yeah. So tell me about um, points to consider. Why is it points to consider? So when ULA do uh, task forces, there are these two, there's, there's a ULA guideline and then there's a points to consider and the, I mean, the, the the difference is really is that a guideline comes in where we've got lots of things that matter for clinical practice mm -hmm. so we know where if you're taking say for example like we were talking about earlier the lupus nephritis um, there's a guideline for that which means we've got lots of drugs we've got lots of evidence these drugs are already being used in clinic the guideline needs to tell you what to do yeah. um, points to consider is where your evidence base is a little bit weaker um, so it's a bit like, well, this isn't quite there in that we're going to tell you start doing this in the clinic yet. Um, it could be somewhat, it could be about clinical practice, but where the evidence is a bit less clear, or it could be something about 
like this, where we're a bit like we're not quite at clinical practice and sort of setting research agenda or guiding people yeah. in how to do their research studies is more is more yeah. important, really. I really like it. And as I said, I think it was a very timely thing to bring to the field and there's plenty more to do. So, Ed, I've really enjoyed interviewing on our Lupus Forum podcast today. And uh, now I'm going to hand it back to you because it's actually your podcast. Yeah, well, uh, yes, and that's been a, a great discussion as always. So thank you for your for your review. It's great to have your insights on the new data and what it means for everyone uh, managing lupus in the clinic. And thank you, everyone, for listening. As always, the papers that we've discussed today and the PowerPoint slide sets that we've used are all available on the Lupus Forum at lupus-forum.com. That's the Morand and Petrie papers are full slide sets, and all of the others are single slide summaries in our literature highlights. And don't forget to register for updates on the Lupus Forum. You'll get email updates when new content like this becomes available. And you can also follow us on Lupus Forum, all one word, on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Thanks again, and see you next time. Thanks, Ed. Goodbye.